0: If you're a regular listener to this podcast, you no doubt have noticed the many differences in how copywriters make their living. Most of us earn money from writing content or copy, but still structure our businesses differently. Some charge by project, others work on retainers, and still others offer day rates and VIP days. But that's just the beginning in the differences that we have as copywriters. Some copywriters consult on funnels and offers, they audit websites and campaigns. Some structure their work so that they earn royalties when a promotion does well, and still others create their own products to sell. Today's guest on the podcast is Ali Goulet. She's tried several of these approaches very successfully and recently launched a WordPress plugin to help copywriters show off their best work. We'll talk more about that in a minute, but first I need to introduce my guest host for this episode. Uh, Brandon Burton. Brandon is a copywriter and a brand voice strategist, and he is also the community manager for the Copywriter Club Facebook groups. Brandon, welcome to uh, welcome to this episode. Thanks for having me, Rob. I really appreciate it. Yeah, of course. So before we get to all of this other stuff, just really quickly, you not only do you manage our communities on Facebook, but you have your own community. Just, we just take a second to tell us a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, I started a um, community called Our Children's World quite recently. And yeah, it's just helping parents tackle the reality of the next few years and helping us raise children who can survive in it and thrive in it.
0: Awesome. And you have a couple of young kids yourself. So you're like a man deep in it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like yourself, yeah. I've, I've got three and I'm just,
1: yeah. They have definitely made me realize it's a conversation worth having.
0: Awesome. And if after listening to this episode, if you like what you've heard from Brandon, Uh, check out episode number 215 of the Copywriter Club podcast. He was our guest for that episode and talked a little bit about his approach to brand voice and some of the stuff that he does for us. Again, thanks Brandon for joining me for some of the additional comments in this episode. Before we get to Ali Goulet and our interview with her, I wanna just quickly mention the Copywriter Think Tank. That's our mastermind for copywriters and other marketers who want to do more in their business and their work, whether that's creating a product or a podcast or a video show whether you wanna build an agency, product company, like what Ali is building. Maybe you wanna become just the best copywriter in your niche. That's the kind of stuff that we focus on with the members of the Copywriter Think Tank. If you'd like to learn more about how you can join, we promise no hard sell, just information, visit copywriterthinktank.com and maybe you can join this group of extraordinary business owners too. Okay, so let's jump into our interview with Ali and find out more about her business and the clients that she works with.
2: The WordPress plugin creator part happened a lot later. So I'll start with the writer and content strategist. It all really happened kind of by accident. I was working a job where I was just like really exhausted and working nights and You know, I was coming to the end of that opportunity where I had to figure out if I wanted to um, extend my role or not. And I really didn't want to. So I decided to go on an internship site because I was still in college at the time and start applying for remote internships. And pretty soon I landed my first client who was paying me to write blog posts. And that's when I was like, oh. wait a minute, because I've always been interested in writing. So it was something that came kind of naturally to me, but it wasn't something that I realized that people would actually pay me to do until I saw those opportunities there. And so for a little while, I was doing content. I was doing outreach for a radio show. I interned for an independent artist booking shows. I was doing everything I could remotely that would make me money but writing clients were the ones that I liked the most. So ultimately that's what I settled into.
3: So you were you started your writing career while in college? Yes. Okay. okay. So how long were you doing it while
2: you were still in college before you graduated? So it was about two and a half years. Two yeah, two and a half, three years part-time. And it was going really well um, during college. It's what helped me pay for school. That's what I was using that income for. And I, I didn't want to stop the momentum. So once I graduated, I'm like, okay, this is a this is thing we're doing now.
3: So how did you build momentum once you graduated and you were committed? You're like, this is what I'm going to do. This is my career. Um, how did you gain that traction early on after graduation?
2: Yeah. So The funny thing about the way that I started is I was really scrappy in the beginning and I did not spend any money (laughs) on anything at all. And when I decided that I was going to do this full time, I thought, okay, well, I need to invest in my professional development here because I had no professional experience in anything at all. Writing is really the only thing I've ever done professionally. So I joined a mastermind the first year that I decided to go full-time in 2018. And I went through that whole program and it was so helpful for me. And it's kind of the thing that kickstarted me into being able to go full-time and realize what that really takes.
3: When did you get to the point where you're like, "This, I, I figured this out. Like, this is great. I'm going to keep doing this. I, this is working."
2: Yeah, by the end of that program, which was a six month program, um, I had met the goal of doubling my income and surpassed it. So I was like, "Okay, <laughs> this is this is a thing that I can do for sure." I had proven that to myself.
3: And what did you do in that program? I'm sure people, some people are listening might be wondering what what is that program and what were the activities that you focused on in that program that helped you get to that point?
2: Sure, so if I can give it a shout out, it was the uh, 2X Accelerator by Carol Tice. Um, It was a really good program, just walking through the basics. I remember the first module very clearly was like, where is your low hanging fruit, right? So going back to people that you have worked with and trying to get projects. I won't go through every module, but basically it was really methodical. And the part that changed everything for me was marketing and networking. I really started getting on LinkedIn a lot more during that program and making connections. And so I think before that, I really wasn't telling anybody that I was a writer. I was just kind of like pitching things and taking jobs when I got them. You know, I had my Upwork profile, but I, I wasn't really visible at all. And doing that was kind of my first experience with getting a little bit of visibility and branching out of my non-existent network at that point. I say branching out, but I think I had like 35 LinkedIn connections at the time.
3: And how many connections do you have today
2: on LinkedIn? (laughs) Over 5,000. So it's been, (laughs) yeah, quite a change on that front.
3: Okay. So can you just talk about your growth from...
2: Okay, graduation 2018, right? Yeah, I graduated at the very end of 2017. So my first month going full-time was January 2018.
3: Okay, so since graduation from college 2017 to now, 2021, can you just talk about like the business growth in terms of numbers or anything you're comfortable sharing just to
2: show um, the power of what you've been doing and how it's worked? Yeah, so I mean it's been it's been crazy because going into this, I was just like I need to make like three thousand dollars a month, and you know, thirty five hundred dollars a month is like a stretch goal. Five thousand would be crazy. Um, and so, I accomplished, um, you know, surpassed my income goal in doing that initial program. And then the very next year, um, I had hit pretty close to six figures. I had invoiced six figures. I didn't quite collect it all, um, so it was really, really quick growth me.
3: And what do you think contributed to that, that almost hitting six figures in that that year, that initial year, other than low-hanging fruit, tapping into your community, what else was working behind the scenes?
2: Yeah. So the year I hit six figures was actually the following year. It wasn't 2018, but it was the year after. And I mean for me, something that I know about myself is that I'm I'm a little relentless. Um, so something that I did after I finished that program was like I'm gonna get really serious about this and i started sending 25 cold pitches a week because you know networking was happening but i was still you know like largely unknown um as you know visibility scared me for a very long time so even though i was like branching out on linkedin you know there still wasn't a ton of traction happening there certainly not inbound so i started sending out 25 cold pitches every single week and i all of a sudden built up this base of clients and was getting people saying, yes, I got very, very good at cold pitching. And that is the thing for sure that helped me grow my business the fastest and be able to get to that level really, really fast. Can you talk more about your cold pitching process,
3: especially back then when you were pitching 25 clients a week? like How how did you improve that process, and what could work for someone who might just be jumping into it for the first time?
2: Yeah, so I think the first important thing is you have to know who your ideal clients are, right? And that was a struggle for me for a really long time because I really I was just comfortable being a generalist, um, and I still recommend that people, you know, kind of explore different opportunities and don't feel pressure to jump into one certain industry right away. But over time, what I determined was that I liked working with B2B SaaS and IT clients. I enjoyed the process of working with them. I found that they usually had the budget. And so that's when I felt comfortable starting to cold pitch. I think trying to do that before you have at least some of that figured out of who you like to work with can be a little bit of a recipe for a disaster. So I started there. And then I would look up um, companies that I you know, was interested in working with. I would use Um, sites like Owler to look up clients that I already had and then look at who um, some of their competitors are, who's in the same space. And then I would go on their websites and I would really just see, okay, is there an opportunity for me to help you here? And not being critical. I don't think that super critical cold pitches um, work. No one wants to be criticized by someone that they don't know. Um, But yeah, and then I would just write them. I would personalize every single one, which can be really time consuming. I did eventually kind of drill that down into a template that worked really well for me, but I certainly didn't start there. And then the other thing that I did that was really important for me was I used a CRM, um, the HubSpot free CRM, and I connected it with... um, Zapier to Google Sheets. So every time I sent a pitch, it would automatically track it and like put it in a spreadsheet for me. You know, you pitched so and so on this day at this time so that I could keep track and follow up.
3: Okay. And are you pitching 25 clients today or prospects today?
2: Is that still happening? No, no. Um, I, yeah, I mean, I work on retainer typically. So a lot of the clients that I have stick around for a while. Uh, that was not sustainable for me to continue to make that part of my process all the time. Now I will still cold pitch people and I'm not afraid um, if I think there's really an opportunity for me to help them and I want to be involved. But that's really more how I handle cold pitching these days because I think it's a great way to grow your business really fast to send that many cold pitches. But I I don't know one copywriter, one freelancer who could sustain that until the end of time. And I don't know why you'd want
3: to. Okay. So before we move away from cold pitches, can you just share where you feel like many of us might mess this process up, where we go wrong, maybe based off what people you've taught or what you've seen in the space, where do we mess
2: it up? Yeah. So, I mean, cold pitching is a whole art, but just a couple of tips on that. I think, first of all, I know a lot of people send really, really long cold pitches and they can work. But what I would say about that is short pitches have worked a lot better for me. And I think it depends on your Market, right? I used to pitch CMOs directly to their inbox. Those people are not going to read a novel from me, right? Because they don't care. They don't know me. If it is a smaller business, maybe they will appreciate that longer pitch. So just be mindful of who you're reaching and what might be going on in their world because it really determines or helps you determine the length of your pitch. And then also, if the word i appears in your cold pitch more than once like you you're doing it wrong <laughs> i see so many cold pitches that are just like i do this and this is why i'm reaching out to you and you know i i i and it's not It's not intentional, like we want to help them, right? But just how many of those phrases can you switch and make it you focused? How can you make it benefit focused for them?
3: And so, how, let's fast forward to today. What does it look like? What does your business look like today? How do you work with clients?
2: Yeah, so my business today, I'm still a little bit of a generalist in the sense that I don't specialize in one particular type of deliverable. Um, I'm still doing B2B SaaS and IT. And I do a lot of email these days, but I'm not super committed to one type of content or copy. I'm kind of everywhere, and I, like I mentioned earlier, I work on retainer with my clients. So typically, we agree on a set of deliverables, you know, during our kickoff call that we have or our discovery call, and then usually for three or six months, they're signed on with the opportunity to extend.
3: And how do you structure those? Um- with what you're charging if you're comfortable sharing like how you approach it as far as what you charge or how you would advise other writers to approach retainers as far as what they charge.
2: Yeah, so for me, and if we can back up a little bit to the earlier, you know, me as a college kid, I had no idea what I was doing. When I first started freelancing, I was like, cool, if I can make 8 dollars an hour, awesome. Like, which is Why was I ever providing content to anyone for that amount of money? Like they were getting a deal. (laughs) So do as I say, not as I did, uh, if you're starting your business. But I think it's important to look at what the industry standard rates are just so that you get like, what are people charging for this stuff? I had no clue. I was just looking at, okay, what am I comfortable charging? Which was well under market rates at the time, right? So Start there and then factor in like your experience level. Usually, with most you know surveys or data you can find, it's organized by you know how much experience you have. And then I like to think about, even though I don't charge hourly anymore, I like to think about what I want to make per hour, and then I add 10 or 20 percent on top of that just because I'm really bad at estimating how long it takes me to do things, I'm pretty fast. But even then, like inevitably somewhere I will hit a snag where some element of the project took me longer than I thought it would.
3: So are you promising a certain number of deliverables for your retainers or how do you set it up so that the expectations are set from the beginning?
2: Yeah, if they are... Absolutely certain on a number of deliverables that they need. Like right now, I'm working with a client where we're doing a number of web pages, and that was determined from the very beginning. I will say, okay, I'm going to deliver you exactly this number of deliverables. If not, I structure it as an up to um, type of deal, so you have up to you know this many deliverables, and I do allow them some rollover within 30 days, um, just so that you know if something goes wrong on their end, they can make up a little bit of that. And that's usually how I structure things.
3: And if you were to step into retainers for the first time or advise someone who's just working on their first few retainers, what would you tell them to do or not to
2: do so it doesn't become a a hot mess? I would say be very, very solid in your project management. And if you're not solid in your project management right now, figure out what tools you're going to use, how you're going to structure things, because if you end up, and I still have this happening to me today, clients wanting to add me to their project management systems and run things their way. And depending on, you know, the scope of your agreement, some of that may or may not be appropriate. But if you have a really solid process that you can guide them through of, you know, this is how we do things, it becomes a lot easier um, to deal with all the different deliverables that are flying around on the retainer. So what
3: would be an example of that in your business, your project management system that allows you to stay in control of the project.
2: Yeah. So I can give you one example that I have with one client right now where I do blog content for them. And <laughs> for some reason, they insist on sending me everything via email, like the different ideas that they have. And I was like, okay, I'm probably not going to have much luck like getting them to adapt to something different. But what I did was I created a system, you'll catch on to a theme, I love automation, where they will uh, send me something that will end up in my inbox and I will tag it with a special um, tag in Gmail, which is what I use for my business. And then when it's tagged that way, it will automatically go over to Trello and be created as a card. Um, and the cards are sorted by oldest to newest so that we're always addressing the oldest sort of item in line. Um, and then I can manage it that way. They have a link to that board. So they always know like, hey, yes, I've received this. It's here. And then I will go in and you know, move things around and progress them through. And they know that they can always go back to that board and look at things. But at least for the intake process, like it's all automatic. If he <laughs> sends me six things in one day, that's cool. Um, Sometimes that happens. And sometimes I don't hear from him for a couple of weeks. But either way, we can always kind of see what's coming up.
3: What Because you mentioned automations, what are some other automations that you use frequently in your business that maybe we aren't using and we could use?
2: Yeah. So like I mentioned earlier, for any sort of um, email tracking, obviously your CRM can do that. I'm a spreadsheet lover. So any sort of automation um, that you can do between um, email or projects and spreadsheets, you can connect those two things. I use um, some automation in my business right now on LinkedIn just to help me find and connect with people. And then some other automations. So many. Um, I also really love... This is a little more approachable than maybe more complex automation. But I use um, email templates that I have created again in Gmail Um, I've saved a bunch of templates for, you know, when things are ready for clients reviews or scheduling calls or things like that. So I'm not rewriting those emails every single time. Um, They're saved in there and I just swap out um, some names and some details and they're ready to go.
3: Okay. So let's go back to what you shared about launching your business in college. I think that's something that we haven't interviewed many, if any um, other freelancers who started in college. And so what do you think when you look back, what do you think is different about your approach to business growth because you started so early and in a different, you know, earlier stage in your career that maybe you've observed over time and you're like, oh, I think I'm doing this differently than people that maybe started, you know, a decade after college.
2: Yeah, I think I think for me the way that my business has been different. Um obviously this is not the case for everyone, but a lot of people, you know, they have either a different career or they're in house somewhere and then they want to go out on their own. Whereas for me, when I decided that I wanted to do this, like I was on my own completely. And not only that, but no one else around me understood what I was doing either. Uh, I think we're out of that a little more now, but it was still a little bit of that era of like, what? You you come into contact with people online and then they pay you money? That that sounds sketchy. So from the very beginning, I just kind of had to take this approach of like figuring it out on my own. And so a lot of that in the beginning was a ton of Just learning and then like throwing stuff at the wall and seeing what sticks. And that's the truth. And not getting discouraged when things don't stick. It's like, okay, I tried that and I've been doing that for, you know, two weeks or a month and that didn't work. But let me see if I can find, you know, some communities and what people are talking about now and what's working for them. And maybe, you know, if I think that makes sense for me, you know, I'll try that too.
3: So, what could I do to channel my? you know, inner alley or like the inner college student that might be scrappier <laughs> even though I'm way way past that stage, but I so I could channel that same thought process
2: and energy into my own business growth. Yeah, I mean, I'd say the key if you're really focused on growth is say yes more than you say no. That's something that I definitely took on in the very early stages of my business. I'll be honest and say I've taken a little too much of that into the current stage of my business, so maybe keep an eye on that. But that's that's what it really was in the beginning. I wasn't too concerned about like the right way to run a business. I was more concerned about like how am I going to do this in a way that works for me? What am I going to do next month to ensure that I can you know pay for my class bill that's coming up? Um, so I think a lot of that you know inspired in me just say yes more than you say no, and the results I think can really surprise people. Yeah. And that just reminds me of a,
3: another question of around being responsible in business and, and saving money. And if you're comfortable sharing or talking about it, do you have advice or best practices as far as how to build a business where you actually are creating a cushion and saving money and having the rainy day fund? Because again, most of us don't do that well or don't do that at all.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think money is so interesting because we all view it so differently. But for me, I really try to view money as a tool to get me what I need and really analyze what I want. It's not that I never treat myself, but if I have like a fleeting thought that, like, oh, that might be cool to have, like, you know. I don't just like go out and buy it. My rule of thumb is like, okay, if I've thought about this three times, maybe maybe it's time to think about like, maybe this is something I need. I try to take that approach with everything. And for me, I think that there is nothing more empowering than like knowing you're good from a financial standpoint. So that's something that I've always tried to prioritize. And I've also always been very aware of lifestyle inflation. That's a real thing. You spend more money when you make more money. And so really, I mean, some things have changed, but largely I don't live a super different life than I did, you know, six years ago when I started this business with a few luxuries and changes, of course. But I think, you know, if you can keep that in perspective, what do you need? And then what do you actually want? And if you want those things, like, was it just a fleeting thought or do you really want them for a reason? Um, That's what I think is really important. I
3: guess related to that, what, what would be your advice for people who struggle with that? And maybe the better question is, what have you been able to do because of this approach to money management and savings? Um, what have you been able to do in your business that maybe you wouldn't have been able to do if you were
2: spending more as you made more? The really great thing about that is that just recently as I've become more comfortable with outsourcing, when I really needed help because I was struggling and there was too much going on, I could, without thinking about it, say, you know, yes, I'm going to bring in help because I need this right now. And I wasn't overly concerned about cash flow. And I understand that that's an extremely privileged position to be in, but I that's just my approach to saving. It's like save it for when you need it because you you will you will need it. Um, other things, you know, joining different masterminds and programs and not having to be stressed when, you know, you have those cart open, cart closes type of launches. Like when I know that there's something that I want to do, you know, I have I have the capability to do it. And certainly, I mean, hopefully that continues. That is the financial situation that I'm in right now. Um and that's where I would like to stay. So my approach to that is just, yeah, save. Save until you have a reason not to save. And then the last question related to that is what is the last luxury purchase you made where it, it did? It was
3: a desire or a want that came up three times for you? And you're like, okay, I'm going to do it now.
2: Oh, yeah. I renewed my annual pass for a theme park super recently since I can go again post-COVID uh, it's, it's very expensive. It's a top tier pass that I was like, Oh, do I want to do this again? Cause I, I also bought it in 2020 and we know how that went. Didn't go well, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I was just like, I'm so ready to go back. So that was the most recent, uh, pricey thing that I splurged on.
0: Okay. So let's break in here and just talk about a couple of these things that Kira and Allie have been talking about uh, you know, I'm not sure what's come to mind for you, Brandon, but first up for me is just this idea of niches. And I know we've talked a lot about it. We mentioned it in our last episode. We talk about it quite a bit, um, but you know, just that struggle of really figuring out a niche and how leaning into a niche can, can help. And I mentioned this briefly in the last episode. I don't know if I got the numbers right or not, but when we did our salary survey, uh, we found that people who have a niche work in a single niche and, and really limit themselves to that earn 96% more money than copywriters who have no niche at all. So, a pretty amazing stat. I know a lot of people are still going to say, "Hey, you can do great without a niche." That's true. There are definitely people who do well with niche, but on average, on the whole, over the, you know, the entire community of copywriters, those who have niches tend to do better than those that don't. So worth mentioning maybe as many times as it comes up in our interviews, but what what stood out to you, Brandon? The,
1: the first thing that stood out to me was Ali describing the point where she started telling people that she's a writer, mostly because I see that come up quite a lot. Of people talk about like, how do I become a copywriter? And I think just that moment, that visibility, that um, choice seemed like quite a powerful one to make and obviously paid off for Ali. Um, and I've seen pay off for other people as well. And even on the, the niching bit, I think Ali's done really well to identify who she wants to work with, but describes herself as somewhat of a generalist and, and works on and retainers. I, I think that's quite refreshing. I think we focus on niching a lot because it works, but at some different stages, it's not for everyone. So um, I think a lot of people for where they are right now will feel pretty good to listen into that example as they kind of build their experience.
0: Yeah, I agree. I mean, when it comes to niching, you can you can choose a niche at any time, but I, I agree. For the first maybe even year or two, you can keep it a little bit more general, or you know play around in several to really figure out what's working for you. Because you know it's not just about choosing the most profitable niche. You can make money in any niche, but you want to be comfortable. You want to choose one that's going to work for you and that you're going to love. And so I appreciate that. You know what you're you're suggesting is sometimes you don't want to move into that too quickly either.
1: Yeah, and that's something that I did and then ended up doing it several times. And I think the approach that Ali's mentioned and I've seen other people do as well, which is kind of um, saying yes to more opportunities and um, being visible and putting yourself out there, Like, yeah, it seems to pay dividends. Um, and I, th- I think when tied into like the cold pitching process, um, as long as you have um, like a, a process, which I know Ali does, um, then then yeah, it seems like this is a, um, a really good way to, to get out there and try new things and and, experiment with different ways of, of doing this job, and then, um, and then taking it from there.
0: Yeah, since you've mentioned cold pitching, you know, let's let's talk just a little bit more about that. Because again, another topic that we've talked a lot about on the podcast, uh, you know, people like Chris Collins have come on and, and talked about how he's automated a process. And you can listen to our interview with him about how he does that. Ali's done that a little bit, but um, she also talks about how she's changing things up. So everything is always personalized. You, you know, her pitch changes based on who she's sending it to. She's making those connections. In smart ways, so that you know she can pull things from, say, a, a LinkedIn conversation, or you know something that she knows about somebody from social media, and is changing that up in order to make sure that those those pitches land a little bit better. And so, regardless of what the pitch is or your approach to pitching, um, just making sure that you're creating that personal connection. Even if you're automating things, ultimately you've got to get it to the point where you can then make a, a personal connection through a follow-up or through some other kind of interchange as you start to work with the client. Yeah, I
1: think the cold pitching element is, um, and you mentioned Chris Collins, both Ali and Chris did a training in the underground and it was just, it was incredible to see how much detail they put into not just the pitch, but the process and the follow-up. And, and I think that's that's obviously one where they've seen the results, but also that's, that's the lesson that a lot of us um, can learn and can 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 grow from.
0: Yeah, and that uh, training is like you said, it's in the Copywriter Underground. Um, and if there's any questions, if you're a member of the Copywriter Underground, if there's any questions, we can help you find that so that you can watch that training. Because I agree, it was it's uh, an awesome training, especially if pitching is part of your business. It may help you find some ideas and some approaches that you hadn't considered before. Um, another thing that jumped out to me as you know, I was listening to Kira and Ali talk is just Ali's approach to business. Uh, you know, she says yes to a lot of things, and certainly as she was starting out, she was saying yes to a lot of things, but she just sort of has this approach where if she has an idea or if she has something that she's thinking about doing, she's just going to figure it out. And, you know, I, that's such a healthy approach to know that, you know, you don't always have to hire an expert. You don't always have to have somebody else uh, doing the work for you or with you or, you know, any of that, but that you can figure stuff out. And, you know whether it's buy a book or get a course or hire a coach or join a mastermind or um, you know just work through you know Google searches or whatever. All of us have the ability to figure stuff out in this business and make it work. Anything else stand out to you, Brandon? I think again, it was it was it was
1: great to hear that by focusing on working with retainers, um, that one that that was a, a business model. I think um, a lot of people go the other way, um, but also just acknowledging the challenge of project management. I think. Um, we talk a lot of copywriters about the writing and the quality of the deliverable um, and the customer experience, but I think um, project management and, and anything we can learn around um, how we can make that easier for ourselves and the client. I think that's that's a way to appear more professional, um, which, which that's something that Ali's invested in a lot in her own kind of professional development.
0: Yeah. I'm glad that you mentioned that because I think as the copywriters that we've worked with, and as I look at... The copywriters that i know and even in my own business i think for most of us uh, project management is is where the problems happen you know most of our issues with clients come out of that project management process we haven't handled it well or we don't have one that is consistent or you know we're reinventing it every single time you know there are different pieces different parts every time we work with a different kind of client and you know marketing issues client issues even some work issues are often really process issues and uh, client management issues and so um, yeah I, I agree I think if there's maybe one thing once you have copywriting down you're a pretty good writer you know you're able to find a client or two if there's one thing to focus on your business it's figuring out those systems to support the work that you do in a consistent and and you know very repeatable manner okay so one last thing that I want to that I just want to mention because you know I know Kira was asking about this but the rainy day fund, uh, you know, Allie has a rainy day fund. We've talked about it with her before. She didn't talk about how big it is. And I'm not, I'm not going to do that either. But it's so important to get to the point in your business where you can put some money away just as a safety measure. You know, maybe the retainer clients disappear or you're not able to bring in a project this month or, or next month. And having a rainy day fund can just take away the desperation that you can feel when your business has those inevitable slowdowns. And then on top of that, you know, if you have a a rainy day fund that's maybe, you know, even three or four or five, six months big so that, you know, you can go through an extended um, slowdown if that kind of a thing happens, if a recession happens or, you know, something, you know, um, you know, an accident or something like that keeps you from working, but in addition to the reason that reason to have it it can also fund the development of other parts of your business where you can actually take time to say oh i am going to build this product that i've been thinking of or i am going to create a, a workshop or a training for you know my niche um, in order to you know create something bigger in my business and just putting money away to support you so that you don't always have to be taking client after client after client or retainer after retainer you fill your hours with that Um, Just having, you know, that slush fund, for lack of a better word, to support you in those things is super, super smart. So whether, you know, the size depends on, you know, you and your business, everybody really ought to have somewhere between three and six months, just in case something, you know, really happens. Um, Bigger if you can get it. But uh, again, something that maybe we don't talk enough about.
1: Yeah, it seemed seemed really clever to me that Ali uses that fund that amount to kind of Invest back into her business when those opportunities come up. It seems like a really intentional way to to grow. Like to know that you have that amount there for when it comes, as opposed to kind of living a bit more seasonally, which which I know like some of us do. um So yeah, I think I think if there is a if there is a plan, then having that money there, is, uh, yeah, makes makes a lot of sense. Makes loads of sense.
0: So now everybody should be checking their bank balances, their you know the credit card debts, and, <laughs> and making a plan for building a rainy day fund or a slush fund to support us in our businesses.
1: Let's go back to our interview with Ali and ask about her approach to connecting with clients on LinkedIn.
3: All right, so let's talk about LinkedIn for a bit. And you mentioned that you've automated parts of your LinkedIn marketing. And I know this is an area that you focused on heavily in your business. Can you just tell us, like, how do you, how do you use LinkedIn to find or attract clients today and to grow your business?
2: Sure. Yeah, so the first thing that I want to say is before you really dive into LinkedIn, like make sure your people are there. I think that LinkedIn is a great place for business, but depending on who you work with, they they your audience might not be there. So try to look up some of your clients and see if they're even there, if they're active there. If they are, that's probably a really good sign for you. For me, being in, you know, the B2B tech space like I knew <laughs> my people were there. So it was really natural for me to go into that space. And then for me, it was all about looking for people with a lot of those same titles that I was cold pitching and just reaching out to them and being really friendly and genuinely saying like, hey, I want to be a part of your network. And even when you add automation into that mix, which I've done, I don't think that makes it any less genuine. Sure, you know, maybe I'm able to connect with more people. But when you use LinkedIn search to kind of drill down into the people you'd like to serve by title, by location, by industry, there are so many different filters you can use. Um, All you're doing is really scaling up your ability to network. And then, you know, it's about just showing up and being nice and being helpful and reminding people that you exist. Because the great thing about LinkedIn is that your title is there always on everything you do, on your profile, in your messages, on every comment that you leave. So you don't necessarily need to scream it from the rooftops that you know, you're looking to make a sale. Like if you're if you're around, um, people will get in touch with you.
3: So maybe we could break it down even more into steps, um, for people who haven't done this on LinkedIn. So it sounds like, you know, step one is identify your ideal clients. Number two, check to see if they're actually on LinkedIn or not before you focus on it. Um, what would be the next few steps as far as like the tools that you're using, um, to move forward and to do this well?
2: Yeah, so the next step is determining what LinkedIn filters you're going to use to sort of search for those people. So you can use, you know, just your standard LinkedIn. Um, a lot of those filters work fine. If you sign up for a Sales Navigator, which you can do a free trial of, you get a lot more filters that you can use. So you can filter, for example, if you use Sales Navigator by people who were active in the last thirty days, which is a really good filter to have because you know just because your people are there doesn't necessarily mean they're there all the time. If you can know you're reaching people who are, you know, who exist and who have a presence on the platform, um, that's obviously better. But You can filter by industry, by title, by location. I like to filter by second degree connections, which basically means that that person has a connection in common with you, just because I find they're more willing to interact with you if you're not completely out of left field. So I would say that that's the next step. And then once you have your list of people, you can just start reaching out to them. My connection message is usually something like, hey, I noticed you work at X. That's super interesting. X meaning like a company name, of course. You have to fill that part in. Um, But hey, I noticed you work here and I'm so interested in what you're doing. I'd love to be a part of your network. That's it. And I would say probably it's about 50-50 that I get a connection request accepted. Most people, especially if you're searching by people who are active, they want a network. That's what they're there for. Um, And then I have a series of follow-up messages that I send. You can automate this um, with a tool like Duck Soup or Octopus CRM. Uh, Be very, very careful. I won't go into all of it here because we'll be here all day. (laughs) But there are certain parameters that you have to be careful of when you're using automation. So there's tons of documentation along with those tools that you can look at just to make sure you understand it um but you don't need to use automation you know it's after the person connects with you and you get that notification hey thanks so much for joining my network um just so you know here's a little bit about what i do i'd love to know about what you do and if you or someone you know could use any of my services feel free to reach out to me like i'm here to help and it's just a series of messages like that you don't have to be overly salesy just be friendly helpful. So how many messages do you usually use to follow up? I mean, it
3: sounds like that follow-up is key where you actually introduce yourself and what you do. But then after that, um, is it just moving forward? If you don't hear from them, you'll continue to kind of check in
2: or is there something else in place? Yeah. So after that follow-up, if they don't reply, I'll usually still try to get in touch with them or do, you know, a coffee or tea chat and just say like, hey, I'd love to learn a little bit more about you. If I have, you know, a relevant sort of industry survey that I think they might be interested in, I'll send them that and just be like, hey, I think this might be relevant to you. I try not to go in too hard for the pitch unless, again, I know that there's a reason that I can help them, which obviously is not done by any sort of automation. Like that's something that I have to realize. But usually usually about four or five messages. Um, If they don't respond by then, I'll sort of reevaluate what I'm doing and can I reach this person differently?
3: And then beyond that, what else are you doing on LinkedIn on the platform to show up consistently? What does that look like? What does it look like today? And then maybe what does it look like when maybe you were more aggressive on the platform or showing up? (laughs) Maybe aggressive isn't the right word here, but whenever you were investing more time in it.
2: Yeah, so to be honest, I'm not posting on LinkedIn as often as I should be, and I know that. But something that I've found to be really powerful is just commenting on other people's stuff. I know that, you know, some people are like, well, isn't that a waste of time? You know, the thing is about the LinkedIn algorithm is the more you interact with people's stuff, the more you see their stuff. Um, especially when you have a lot of connections like I do, I want to make sure I'm commenting on, you know, people that I'm interested in so that their posts continue to show up in my feed because I just happened to land on a couple months ago someone saying, Oh, you know, we're looking for a B2B writer to do X, Y, and Z. And I was right there to be like, hey. <laughs> I'm right here. And that would not have been the case uh, if I wasn't, you know, kind of watching my feed and interacting with people's posts. So I think that there's a whole strategy behind posting on LinkedIn and doing it frequently and showing up and providing value. And, but I think the part that often gets overlooked is like engaging with other people too.
3: Let's talk more about visibility because you mentioned earlier that that's something that you struggled with earlier on. How have you worked through your own? Mindset or any resistance to visibility? What has helped you do that so that you are showing up more consistently today?
2: Yeah, I mean, visibility is still a little scary to me, if I'm honest. But I think for me, you know, I've had to adopt a little bit more of the same approach that I took with cold pitching, where it's like, if one person says no you know it's not going to be the end of the world if i you know post something that people don't like or i have one podcast episode that i do and i just bomb it like everyone in the world is not going to realize that <laughs> like it's not going to be the end of my business so i've just kind of had to like chill out a little bit and realize you know what got you here won't get you there You know, I've done a lot to grow my business really, really fast, but I have no choice but to try other strategies now if I want to get somewhere, you know, beyond where I am today.
3: So, what are the strategies you're focused on today?
2: Right now, it's visibility and reaching out to people a lot more, and teaching, and not doing as much client work uh, as I once was, and really focusing on okay, what can I do to build up more of my platform? Because as resistant as I was to that, I realized that it's really important.
3: Yeah. Well, let's also talk about that because since since we've been working with you in the think tank, you've made so many changes, and you have done a great job of pivoting away from just focusing on client work and putting client work first all the time. And now you're focused on your business growth and your business development. What's helped you make that change? And what could help other copywriters who are struggling with that? Because again, like most of us do put the clients first all the time to the point where it's hurting our business.
2: Yeah, actually, Kira, it was something that you said to me that like totally shifted my perspective on that. I think it was actually during a group call. I don't know if you said it to me directly, but you said, look, like you're always gonna get the client work done. You're you're never gonna let that slip. So if you're the type of person, which I imagine that you are if you are happen to be freelance self-employed, like you're committed to deadlines, right? You don't miss them. You have to be. You have to be responsible. And so, what was happening is, I was putting all my client work first, and it was easy for me to push my own stuff off. I think that happens to everyone. But if you force yourself to put your stuff first every single day, even if that means, you know, occasionally you're working a late night or two, like you're going to get that client work done because you're just not going to drop the ball. And so that was the thing that I had to realize of like, this is, this is hard because I want to you know say like, oh, let's get the client stuff out of the way and then let's work on my stuff. But it just wasn't working for me. So I had to make that shift and realize like, I, I know this about myself. I've been in this business for six years. I'm not going to drop the ball on my clients. So the only way to do this is to shift it around to make sure that I don't put myself at the end of the day and then end up dropping the ball on myself.
3: And what has been the impact of that now that you have started putting your business first? What have you seen or have you felt from that change?
2: Yeah. I mean, in terms of tangible results at the moment, this is all still very new for me. So I'm excited to see what happens. But I think, I think just the realization that, look, I can work on my business for two hours in the morning and nobody imploded. Everyone's okay. <laughs> you know, like that's always my fear because I try to be as helpful as I can with my clients. And like, I've really had to put in that boundary of like, I don't need to respond to that email 20 minutes after they send it. Like, <laughs> it's going to be okay. Um, so I think, you know, just for my sanity, for my mental health, I think that's been huge so far. And I'm excited to see uh, what impact it has business wise.
3: And let's talk about the evolution of your business and just how. How you have changed and shifted your business over the last few years and the direction of your business, um, how you've thought about it and approached it.
2: How have I thought about it? I don't know. I feel like maybe a lot of people feel this way, but I feel like I don't know what I'm doing a lot of the time. And that's like the truth. I've had a lot of success, but I think for me the biggest thing that i've thought about in my business especially lately is like okay i've reached the income goals i wanted to reach like now now what what am i what am i doing this for and so what that inspired in my business is i want to help more people figure out how to do this and so that's that's the shift that i've made is like i know that i come from a little bit of a unique perspective having essentially no skills when i started and i was in college and i i know that this was life changing for me often as stressful as it is like the things that i get to do every day and the financial goals i've been able to meet paying off all my student debt as early as i did for example like this is unbelievable to me i wake up every day still and i'm like how <laughs> what's happening um so yeah i think the biggest shift that it's inspired is now you know i still want to serve my clients and it's important to me to still be involved in that world but i'm shifting a little more into like how can i help other people realize that this is a thing that they can do too and it doesn't have to be really really stressful
3: and what are you building to do that, and to help other freelancers figure figure out all these things?
2: Yeah, so I have a blog called Freelancing Flow where I try to provide lots of actionable advice and templates, and I have a newsletter. and The idea is not really about telling you the right way to do business, because as I said earlier, like I was never super interested in that. But it's more about just providing you with the information you need to make those decisions for yourself and to create a business that works for you. So that is one thing that I started doing at the end of 2019. And then right now, I'm working on a WordPress plugin for freelancers that's going to help them build an awesome portfolio on their site because I struggled (laughs) with that. And so I, I realized that there was a need there and that's kind of the thing I'm working on now.
3: Okay, so yeah, let's back up. And um, before we talk about the plugin, can you just share maybe some do's or don'ts of building a portfolio as a copywriter and like what works, what doesn't work?
2: Yeah, so I mean, I would say that the first one is having one, <laughs> having a portfolio. It's, it's unbelievable to me how many writers like, their their portfolio is just a collection of Google Drive links and like that's that's cool. I mean I've done that, but also I think it's really important to have a collection of your work to be proud of and to be able to show off. Um and then I think for writers especially I think we're you know we're word nerds, we're word word people. Um I think we don't often think about the visuals. I think not including images in your portfolio, if you do actually create a portfolio page, is a mistake because nobody wants to look at a wall of links. That's just, I don't want to do it. You don't want to do it. No one wants to do it. And then also, I think including everything you've ever done in your entire life is a mistake. I think that a lot of people fall into that because they think of a portfolio as like, oh, my complete body of work. And that's not what it is. And also, I don't I don't know about you, but I look at something I wrote like 6 months ago and sometimes I'm like, ooh. <laughs> like that's that's not something I want in there anymore. So I think it's just important to be a little bit selective about what you put in there. It shouldn't be everything.
3: Yeah. And what was the catalyst for creating this plugin? Like, where, I mean, again, you're, yeah, we're word people, we're strategic minds, we are problem solvers, um, but not many of us are WordPress plugin creators. So, where did that come from? And how, and then how did you actually do this and build a plugin?
2: Yeah. So, it started. The funny thing is, I did not even realize that this was going to be a thing that I was doing, but years ago, when I was setting up, my portfolio on my first WordPress site, it was so hard. Like I had a vision of what I wanted it to look like. And it wasn't, you know, tons of frills and whatever. It was very basic. And I tried a couple of plugins to, you know, try to recreate what I wanted. And it just was not working. And I was spending hours doing this and like tearing my hair out, going, like, why, why is this going so wrong? Why is this so hard? Um, so I got some very basic sort of code done for my portfolio that I know how to update, and that was that was kind of the end of that story. That that stopped there. And then when I built my first course last year, teaching people how to build portfolios, uh, I was actually on a call with you and Rob uh, following that launch, and I said, you know, something I'm thinking about, including maybe as a bonus, you know, is is that code? Like maybe people will find it helpful. <laughs> And Rob's like, no. And I'm like, no. <laughs> what do you mean? No?" Um, and so that was that was the catalyst for that was him saying, no, you should you should turn that into a product. Believe me, developing a WordPress plugin, working on a WordPress plugin was not the thing that I thought that I would be doing. But I knew that I was really frustrated with the options out there. And you know, after having that conversation with you and Rob, I just realized like this can be done better. And it can be done specifically for people, you know, in this community, writers and freelancers.
3: Any advice for anyone who's interested in creating a WordPress plugin, like what what you wish you knew before getting into it?
2: I would say it's going to take longer than you think it's going to take, probably. <laughs> also true of my client work. Um, but yeah, there's just a lot of different factors that go into it, especially because in my case, there are a lot of portfolio options out there. And so for me, I had to do a lot of the research into what our competitors are doing. And I really had to think about, okay, we're not going to make this different for the sake of different, because I don't think that works. But really think about if you're going to create a plugin, especially because unless you are the most creative person on earth, there probably is a similar plugin um, to what you want to create think about what needs to be changed or added in order to serve the people that you want to serve and what is the unique take that you can bring to it that other people may not necessarily be able to
3: and how can we get our hands on your plugin like what is what's the plan how do we access your plugin.
2: Yeah. So there's going to be a free version of the plugin, which you can access by searching for plugins directly in the back end of your WordPress site. It's called Genius Portfolio. There's also a premium version. And for that version, you head over to getgeniusportfolio.com. And once you sign up, you'll get the download for the plugin.
3: Okay. And we'll we'll make sure we link to that in our show notes. And so as we wrap up, Allie... Um, I want to ask you, you know you've been in the think tank for over a year now with us, and it's been so great to work with you and see your growth firsthand. Um, what would you say has been the biggest surprise about your experience in the think tank um, over the last twelve months?
2: I mean my biggest surprise is like the direction of my business has changed and and not in a bad way. I you know, I've been in the TCC community and so I've seen Think Tank alumni and what they've done and I had all these ideas for what I was going to do when I went into the Think Tank and some of those happened and some of those didn't. But the awesome thing about the Think Tank is you're you talk to people all the time, you're in so many workshops and you have so many opportunities to kind of think out loud in front of a room. And things just happen that you're like, oh, yeah, that is a good idea. Or, ooh, actually, maybe I should stay away from that. And so making those really genuine connections and having sort of this collective experience together of having these huge goals and then just being open to, hey, like I I know I had these ideas about what I wanted, but I don't have it all figured out. And being open to those new opportunities that – become available to you. That's been the biggest surprise and also the biggest value that I've gotten out of Think Tank.
3: And you are an avid tea drinker. So I have to ask, like, what what tea are you drinking today? And what is the name of the tea subscription that we should subscribe to if we want to drink new teas every day?
2: Yeah, so this is going to break your heart, Kira. I'm so sorry. I have water today because I was like nervous to drink because I didn't want to spill it. So I have a glass of water over here. Um, this Not morning acceptable. Acceptable. <laughs> This morning I had um a mint mate tea, which is very, very good. It has a lot of caffeine. And if you're looking for a really good tea subscription, there's a Sip Spy box that you can find at sipspy.com. That's really awesome. You fill out a profile quiz, kind of looking at your tastes and what flavors you like and things like that. And they send you a personalized box every single month. And then when you get the box, you can rate each individual tea that you got to say like, hey, I liked this or no, I really didn't. And it gets more and more catered to your tastes over time. So it's, it's awesome if you're looking for new teas, which I always am.
0: So that's the end of our interview with Ali Goulet. Before we go, Brandon, let's touch on one or two more things that, you know, stood out to us in this last half of the episode. Um, you know, Ali was talking about her approach on LinkedIn and what she does there. And, you know, I just it, the, the question occurred to me, you know, should should we even be on LinkedIn? You know, there are definitely copywriters whose clients are not on LinkedIn. They're not going to connect with you know their clients. And so I think that's the number one question that people should should ask. We've talked a lot about how to engage people on LinkedIn and different approaches over the last 50 episodes of the podcast. But maybe the very first question all of us should be asking is, should you even be there? And if your clients are there, then awesome, you know, engage there. But if they're not, don't waste your time on a social media platform where you're not actually going to connect with the people that you want to work with.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. And I, th- I think that question is worth asking for for a lot of advice, right? It's, I think Ali mentioned earlier in the podcast is how to make this work for for us. And even even just thinking of LinkedIn as, as different from other um, social platforms, is that gonna kind of suit the way that you use the internet? Is that gonna like suit the way that you like to show up? Um, and then and then on the other side of that as well, can you can you commit to that? And I think um, Ali again has been really like deliberate with that approach, and it's and it's paid off. And I think you could apply that same um, way of looking at any angle we go down, um, just being like really smart about whether or not it fits as opposed to just doing it because other people have had great results from it.
0: Yeah. And while she was talking about LinkedIn and her approach to it, she did mention, uh, there was a comment about the parameters with LinkedIn automation that you need to be careful with. Um, I think that specifically she was talking about how, if you're using automation software, uh, LinkedIn can detect that. And if you start sending out, you know, pitch after pitch after pitch, you know, more than say 20 a day or, you know, may the number may vary a little bit from that, but um, they can actually shut down your account and not allow you to, you know, connect with other people. So just be careful that when you're setting those parameters uh, that you're you're not violating LinkedIn's rules for automation. Um, they do that to control spam so that, you know, we're not all flooded with emails from people that we don't want to hear from. Uh, but if you're there pitching, Smart to be aware of what those limits are. Uh, Another thing that stood out to me, and this is, you know, other than the how impressed I am by Allie and the plug-in and this business that she's building, but just the idea that she was talking about how she started putting her business first and how, you know, client work tends to get done because we have the deadline, we have to pay the bills, you know, and so by carving out one day a week or a couple of hours every morning before you start that client work in order to work on your own business is such a critical idea. I know Karen and I have mentioned that in several places. We've talked about it on the podcast before, but it's just, it's that idea that it's so easy to forget because again, you know, I have a deadline this afternoon and I've got to get stuff done. And so I'm going to skip working on my business this morning. And, you know, I I can, we can always put that off in, in, you know, the, the fixes to our own websites, the, the the pieces of our own business that you know help bring in more clients, we put that stuff off until the current clients are taken care of. And then that's oftentimes what causes the, the feast and famine cycle, because we're not paying attention to our business or to you know whatever the processes are that bring in new clients. So just reiterating that idea, you have to put your own business first, whether it's your copywriting business, whether it's something else that you're doing and building for the future. That has to happen first before you work on your clients. Not saying sh- give clients you know short shrift and and to not give them everything that you promise, but take that time for yourself first.
1: Yeah, i i I think that's always seemed quite counterintuitive to me, but it, it, it does work. And for the reasons Ali outlined, which I think came from you and Kira, um, I I think that more of us as we kind of build these things should start thinking of it as like long term businesses and and what today means about tomorrow. Um, but yeah, I'm, 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 I like that approach. I'm, I'm a big fan of marketers generally taking what they've learned and then building solutions for the people coming after them. Um, I think both of the projects that Ali's working on seem really smart, really helpful. Um, you can see the value in the blog and the plugin. I think these are just things that people really need. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's great to see that and to see, again, that example of, of the things people are doing with the skills they've built over the years.
0: I think what you were saying there is really important, too, because one of the reasons we put our businesses last is that we don't always think of our businesses as an asset or as, you know, a a thing that we're really building. We we just see ourselves as service providers. I'm a copywriter. I write copy. I can help you do your copy rather than thinking this business that I'm building is actually an asset that is going to provide for me in different ways in the future. And, you know, maybe... You do continue just writing copy, and you're a great copywriter, and and you're not necessarily building a plugin or you know other pieces of your business, but you still need all of the pieces in your business to be as good as they possibly can be in place in order to keep that client flow coming. So I, I think you hit it on hit the nail on the head when you're pointing out that we need to see our own businesses as a business, as an asset, as something that we're building in order to really start to prioritize it yeah I love that I'm gonna start thinking of it as as an asset for sure yeah I love that so what else uh, stood out to you brandon from uh, this last part of the conversation
1: Ali previously did a training in the the copyright club group about portfolios um I think it was one of our most popular ones but it, it just strikes me as something that quite a lot of people struggle with um so that that pivot that Ali's making um one just just from a portfolio angle I think is I think is great I think That stuff we need. Um, But even just, I think, yeah, the more of us that do stuff like that, um, it feels like that's where the opportunities are, just outside of client work. I think when we can solve bigger problems and keep raising the bar, I think what Ali's doing helps make other copywriters better at their job and attract better clients. Um, And I think anytime we can do that and kind of raise the bar for all of us, uh, yeah, it seems like a win-win.
0: Absolutely. And... You know, to, to really put that idea on steroids, you know, creating these kinds of assets for people in your industry, in your niche, um, you know, thinking beyond the copywriting world or the marketing world where, yeah, we're all sort of familiar with this stuff. And so it makes sense to to share these ideas. But even going deeper, if you have you know a set of templates that is directed at medical providers or dentists or health clubs that can help drive traffic for their business, that's the kind of thing that, Again, you know, think of let's let's say health clubs, you know, think of the thousands of health clubs that there are, you know, across uh, all the various countries where we all live. Right. They all need help attracting clients. And so if you can create these kinds of tools for that niche or for whatever niche you work in uh, for your clients, uh, it's just an awesome opportunity that uh, can help all of us grow our businesses in different ways.
1: Definitely. I'm looking forward to seeing what Ali does with this and then to see what other people do and take into their spaces as well
0: yeah i am as well let's you know talk briefly about that that plug-in you know that all came out of a discussion uh as ali was telling the story you know with, with karen and I, and she was talking about some different things that she could add to um you know help the freelancers that she works with in in her community and uh you know was is even an idea i, I don't remember exactly you know how it came up in the discussion but uh it it struck me as such a good idea that you know, we, we basically said to ali's like hey if you're not going to build this thing we, we will because it's needed in the world. And again, just uh, sitting down and having those kinds of conversations with other copywriters or with a coach, with somebody who can reflect back what's going on in your business and help you isolate, determine which ideas are worth pursuing or which ones uh, you, know, you want to put time into. Uh, it's just such a really healthy thing for us as business owners. Kira and I do it. We have mentors that we reach out to for discussions all the time. I know, Brandon, you've done it. Uh, and, you know, the, obviously the members of our think tank, there are other copywriter groups. If one of our groups isn't a perfect fit, but just having those kinds of discussions and, and reflecting ideas back at each other can help us all in so many ways, whether it's feedback on copy or feedback on business ideas, something that we highly encourage everybody to be doing in order to make our businesses as successful as possible. Yeah, it, seem, it seems like one of those things that helps to speed up,
1: like how we go from ideas which most of us have like great ideas to like really putting something out there just having it validated by people who know what they're talking about or have done something similar or are working on similar stuff at the same time so yeah I think I think the more times we can like test our ideas and put them in front of people because I'm sure that reaction (laughs) that Ali got from you guys which is hold on this is a a standalone product that you could do really well with was 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 like game changing. And, and yeah, the more people who can put their ideas to that stage, I think, yeah, more of us will see um better results and do bigger things that, that we maybe be we wouldn't have taken otherwise.
0: Yeah, for sure. And obviously, you're kind of doing something similar. It's not necessarily a product, but you've created this community that's not focused on copywriting. It's focused on parenting and and for a need that you're seeing. And you're, you're able to experiment and play around with that. And you know, whether or not it's successful, the things that you learn in doing that are directly applicable to the the kinds of projects that you work on with other clients. It, they can lead to additional ideas, you know, further things down the road. Um, and in the short term, maybe this one is a success, and you hit it out of the park, and you know, you've got you've just built a, a second business that uh, can contribute to your income and to your lifestyle.
1: Yeah, and thanks for that. And I, th- I think the more examples we get of people doing stuff like that. Um, I think this helps us to realise that maybe we don't and again, because so many people have come from non copywriting backgrounds, it seems crazy that we'd always then box ourselves in. Um, when when we're when we're continually picking up new skills that that people can use everywhere. So yeah, I think I think um yeah, I've certainly taken inspiration from from some of those examples so far that I've seen from people around me.
0: More copywriters doing more kinds of businesses. I can't wait to see it. It'll be fun. We want to thank Ali Goulet for joining us on the podcast today. If you want to connect with her or check out what she's doing with her business, there are a couple of different places that you can go. Uh, to learn more about the portfolio plugin that we've been talking about that she's developed, go to getgeniusportfolio.com, and you can check out freelancingflow.com to see what she shares about running a freelance business, and finally to learn more about her copy and content writing business, go to copyoncue that's copy on c u e com
1: that's the end of this episode of the Copyright club podcast the intro music was composed by a copywriter and songwriter addison rice the outro was composed by copywriter and songwriter david Munter. if you've enjoyed what you've heard please visit apple podcasts to leave a review of the show and if you're ready to invest in yourself and your business and finally achieve your goals visit copywriterthinktank.com thanks for listening we'll see you next week
0: and I want to thank you, Brennan, for joining me, for uh, for adding your ideas to this interview. Thanks for being here. I appreciate it. All
1: right, it was great. Thank you. Copywriters coming together to help the world write better. Copy and make more money. Kira and Rob Copywriters Club.